Welcome to the CCF Podcast. We're a campus ministry at Truman State University. This podcast features sermons from our weekly worship services. Thanks for listening. Off to a great start, aren't we? Hi, I'm Leah again. Um, I am one of the women's ministers here on staff, as Derek mentioned a little bit ago. Um, I do want to say welcome, all these people here on the lawn, all the parents and families. We're so glad, and alum, we're so glad. Yeah, you can snap and clap, JJ, I see you. Um, We are so glad that you are here with us this morning. Um, Just talking to a few people about Parents Weekend, it just seems like it's another breath of fresh air after not being able to have this last year, um, and so yes, we are so glad. Um, I did also want to say that um, Derek had talked about the staff, but this um, community also like includes students and student leaders and who um, take in maybe what we're doing here and take it back out to campus, which is really awesome um, because, oh my goodness, we six staff are not sometimes as accessible to those students. But anyway, great people here. We love them. Um, I'm going to grab these books that I'm going to show you. I'm going to use some of them, too. I was telling Derek because sometimes he brings books up here um, when he's preaching. And usually you just like see them and you can maybe wonder um, what they're about. But I was thinking about today, I wanted to just show you all the things that have been like influencing my mind and brain, um, people I've been reading who will show up in this sermon thing that I'm about to give. Um, and so if you hear anything, your ears are tickled a little bit, um, I have these things for you if you want to check them out. So that's that on that. Alrighty, let's get started. But first, do we have any note takers? Like, you take notes for um, sermons? Anybody? Loud and proud. Yes, okay. I was thinking of you all this morning because one of my biggest struggles is knowing how to um, title sermons. It's like my least favorite part. Um, And so this is for you if you need to write something down. But after listening to the sermon, you come up with something better. Please share it with me because I'd just love to know. All right, the title, here we go. It is, My God, My God, Have You Really Abandoned Me? That's that's that, okay. So, um, a lot of you are here who um, have not been following us this semester, so let me catch you up and bring you up to speed. We've been centered on the crucifixion and the many ways in which we experience the transformative power of the cross. Um, if you were here for our first like introductory sermon at the beginning of the year, you heard Reed set up the series, um, and he said the hope is for us to get better at telling our own story, even as we get better at perceiving the stories of others so that we can affectionately and shrewdly see and say where they intersect. Not only to tell it, but to live it and embody it. And later, he quoted N.T. Wright, saying, Jesus died for our sins, not so we could sort out abstract ideas, but so that we, having been put right, 
can become part of God's plan to put his whole world right. So that is what we are getting at. Um, so we spent some time considering um, this semester experiences of condemnation and the cross with Reed and then um, the rescue from and victory over sin in the world through the cross with Derek. And the other four staff, including me, um, are preaching through the passion narratives and the four gospel accounts. Um, that's the telling of Jesus' death and resurrection. And so we already heard Keith take us through Mark's short account with the emphasis on fear and the cross. And this morning, I will be talking through um, the passion narrative in Matthew. And in a few weeks, we'll have Nate with um, Luke. And then after that, Matt will be talking on John's passion narrative. And so as you've heard, the staff surely has been drowned in scripture in these um, passion narratives. Starting this summer, we all took turns reading in these beautiful illuminated journals, um, the passion narrative. So this is the one that I've been holding on to. It's the Matthew one. And we've invited students to do the same too with us, which is really awesome. Um, and so this summer, as the staff was reading through the gospel accounts, um, and I was reading Matthew's account, I was first struck by Jesus's last teachings before his betrayal and crucifixion, because Jesus really goes in on the Pharisees in a way that I hadn't really paid attention to before. Um, he gives seven pictures describing how in the Pharisees' zealous um, pursuit to scrupulous, oh my goodness, to scrupulously obey the letter of the law, they had missed the entire spirit and heart of the law, what Jesus calls the weightier matters that are justice, mercy, and faithfulness. And the most striking to me was when he described the Pharisees as whitewashed tombs, outwardly appearing beautiful, but on the inside full of dead bones full of greed and self-indulgence and self-righteousness. I just, uh, yeah, I just am thinking about, like, outward appearance, and then on the out inside, you're just, like, completely dead inside. I don't know. Does anybody ever feel that way? I don't know, or think that they are that way. So this indictment um, of the Pharisees is juxtaposed with the story of Jesus embodying the very message that he preached, that of justice and mercy and faithfulness um, through his suffering, death, and resurrection. I'm convicted by Matthew's framing of the passion narrative, which points to human Jesus, like human like you and me, um, as a great embodiment of acting justly and loving mercy and compassion and faithfully walking with God, even in his final hours when he was the most alone and abandoned and betrayed. Um, I'm struck by Matthew's emphasis on the mental and emotional part of Jesus's suffering through the betrayal and abandonment by all of his closest followers, not just Judas, in the rising action leading up to his death. And yet, Jesus responds to all of this in what to me is like very unexpected, which is the way of compassion and mercy and complete submission to the suffering he's enduring. And um, this makes me think about, like, I'm not trying to compare this story to like Jesus's experience, but I was thinking about along with like men's assassin coming up with the guys, there was women's assassin last year. And 
uh, I played to my regret because mentally I could not handle it. You're just very on edge and um, not with it that week. And so, or in the time that you're in it. And so I was playing and I had decided to go on a walk with a student um, during, um, like, this is also Passion Week. Like, we're about to celebrate Jesus' death and resurrection. It's that week. Um, and so I am dis- I've decided to go on a walk with a student. And beforehand, like, I knew that they knew who had me and they were friends with this person and that they would set me up. And I remember I was about to go on this walk. I was standing in the kitchen and I um, ran into a student and I can't remember who it was. And I was like, yeah, I'm about to go on this walk and I'm about to die. Like that's what's gonna happen. And at the time I was like, okay, I'm surrendering to this thing (laughs) that's going to happen. And so I go. And this student, wow, she really coordinated with a few people because I go down this street and a student, I hear someone running behind and I have my Nerf gun with me even though I'm ready to surrender (laughs) my life. Oh my goodness. And um, I hear running and I turn around and there's a student, you're laughing so hard right now, who shot me and stunned me. So like I can't protect myself anymore in this game if like my act- the actual person coming after me um, is there. And so I'm like, okay, now I'm really like going to die. And so we're walking behind Ryle. I hear the footsteps again. This is a now another student who comes running toward me with her Nerf gun straight pointed. But like she hesitated and like in the moment was like, I can't do it. And I like froze. <laughs> And then I ran, I fled, I ran away because I was like, here's my moment, I'm gonna avoid this. I ran from behind Ryle all the way to um, B&B. I ran inside and I ran into the bathroom and they ran after me and they're like, Leah, you're safe in here. I was like, no, I'm not. And I stayed in the bathroom for like 10 minutes. They called, this part is irrelevant, so I'm gonna skip it. Anyway, I stayed there for 10 minutes and then I was thinking about it, I was like, Leah, like, it's fine. You don't even want to be in this anyway. Like, just give it up. <laughs> and so I was like, okay, because the student on the w- who I was on this walk with, she had come to the bathroom. And so, or like outside the door, and I just wasn't opening the door. But finally, I was just like, okay, I'm going to do it. We're going to go and have this walk because that's what's more important. Like, I'm a campus minister. I need to be here with my student. <laughs> and so... We walk out, and then part of me was hoping, like, maybe she's, like, the person who has me is gone. And so we walk out of the front of Ryle. I take two steps out, and then I'm shot. I was like, okay, there we go. Anyway, so I felt very betrayed and found it very fitting that that happened during um, Jesus' passion. But I failed to surrender initially in the way that Jesus did. But also, Jesus had a far weightier task at hand than Nerf guns. So I want to share some scripture with you. This is from Matthew 26, setting up um, Jesus' betrayal. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be very sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, 
even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinner, sinners. Rise and let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And then skipping over just a little bit. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. So the part that I didn't read over was in between the two passages was when Judas comes and betrays Jesus into the hands of a crowd. And then it says that Jesus' disciples, they just flee. And so um, that's just context for what I'm about to say. When Judas, a disciple who has been doing ministry for Jesus with Jesus for three years, brings a crowd to Jesus to capture him, um, Judas greets Jesus greets Judas with these words. He says, friend, do what you came to do. Which is a ridiculous greeting to me. Like, I wouldn't have said that to my, my betrayer. Like, friend, do what you came to do. Um, and furthermore, Jesus doesn't try to fight with his words or run away like I did. Jesus knows what is going to happen and just tells Judas to do the thing, to hand him over to the crowd that wants Jesus dead. And so I see this as a sign of Jesus' steadfast love and compassion, even to the one who would betray his life and to the ones who would betray his life, because we have the other disciples included in that. Um, and further, this is Jesus submitting to the suffering that he would endure. So Jesus is also abandoned, as I said, by the rest of his disciples. Um, we read they fall asleep on him. Um, in the garden instead of staying awake with him. And they flee at the time in which I would think that Jesus, who again is fully human, like you and me, would have wanted comfort and support and presence. 
um, from his followers because he is about to go through the most physical pain um, and suffering as well as mental and emotional suffering if he hasn't already, and Jesus knows it. Um, so when the disciples flee and Jesus is taken away to be questioned, I wonder what Jesus is thinking about. Like, is he thinking about what Judas has just done? Is he forgiving Judas? Was he thinking about his disciples and how they fled? Did he pray again to God? Was he still constantly in prayer with God, asking for strength for the task at hand? So Jesus is on his own then after this when he's questioned first by the Sanhedrin, then by Pilate. And he goes through questioning and beating and mocking before he is crucified. And then on the cross in his final moments, as you just heard, Matthew writes that Jesus' final words to God are, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then he cries out again and surrenders, yields up his spirit. So this final phrase that Matthew records as Jesus' last words are from Psalm 22, which we heard earlier, um, which is fulfilling the scriptures um, and showing, like, Jesus' final, like, maybe feelings or thoughts um, before his death. And this psalm as a whole is a lament about God's absence and silence. And this psalmist, mind you, wrote this many hundreds of years, thousands of years before Jesus utters them. Um, and you can hear the psalmist really going through it. And so I'm going to share um, parts of that again. The psalmist writes, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. And by night, I find no rest. And later he says, I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. And these words are literally what was told to Jesus while he was on the cross, while he was being beaten and mocked and scorned. And yet, you didn't hear the full psalm uh, this morning. The psalm that Jesus references is a lament, which if you know anything um, about laments, they are for sure um, very devastating and convey deep sorrow and pain at personal sin and communal sin, um, or even as a response to bad circumstances and bad things happening in our lives. So I think like we all can relate sometimes to the words that the psalmist writes. But laments like the one in Psalm 22 are also hopeful in that they call on a compassionate and present and powerful God who is with God's people. So what you didn't hear in the rest of this psalm is this. But you, Lord, do not be far from me. You are my strength. Come quickly to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of the lions. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. 
I will declare your name to my people. In the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel, for he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. From you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you, I will fulfill my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the rich of the earth will feast and worship. All who go down to the dust will kneel before him. Those who cannot keep themselves alive. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. So knowing that this final cry to God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Maybe Jesus' final words, according to Matthew, not only speak to the agony of feeling separated from God and totally alone and betrayed and deserted um, by his close followers as well. So in this time, Jesus is also thinking of God's very presence. Maybe Jesus was thinking about the kingdom of God breaking through in this act of justice done out of a love of mercy and compassion and submission to faithfulness to God. So even in his suffering, Jesus endured to the end, just as he charged his disciples to do the same and us to do the same. So certainly Jesus knows um, the most about suffering and pain and abandonment and loneliness. And I wonder how many of us have felt abandoned by God um, or unable to see or receive the goodness of God or our awareness of God is clouded by seeing um, the sins of the world and the evil in the world and also in us and it's overwhelming and so sometimes we think my God my God why have you abandoned me why have you abandoned us And so this has made me think um, a lot about the most recent time in which I felt far from God and unable to see the goodness of God, not just in my life, but in the lives of people around me. Uh, Lauren Winter, in her book, right here, still um, notes on a mid-faith crisis, names this as a spiritual middle and describes it as a time in which it seems nothing is alive, not even God. You may arrive at the spiritual middle exhausted in agony in what the saints of the Christian tradition have called desolation. Or your journey to the middle may be a little easier, a little calmer. It is not that God is absent. It is rather that your spiritual life seems to have faded like fabric. Some days the fading doesn't trouble you at all. And some days it seems a hollowing loss. You're not as interested as you once were in attending to God. 
The assumptions and habits that sustained you in your faith life in earlier years no longer seem to hold you. A God who was once close seems somehow farther away, maybe in hiding. So I was reading that actually in this middle time that I was feeling, and it resonated a lot. And I wonder if those words resonate with any of you. Um, So for me in this middle, life felt very heavy. I was burdened by worries about people I loved, burdened by the problems of the world that, like, I couldn't fix. And if you know me, like, I I am a fixer. I want to make it better and right. (laughs) I want to control the thing. And I'm reminded again and again, I cannot... So I was exhausted and very sad and very confused and wondering if God was enough. I was weighed down by sins of envy and bitterness and insecurity. So this added to that. That became a wearying vortex of negativity and self-absorption. And in, in the beginning middle of this time, I distinctly remember a prayer, like a morning prayer time I went to, where Reed read a little bit from Ann Voskamp's A Thousand Gifts, which is a book here about um, recognizing the many gifts of God each day and giving thanks. And we were instructed to think about and write down what we were thankful for. And I, he's talking, and in my head, I'm just like, no, like I can't. I can't receive this right now. Like, I don't want to hear this right now. And I didn't want it. And I felt in a lot of ways that I was really wrestling to see and know God. And I just couldn't, and it was really exhausting. So experiencing this middle, middling of faith is not uncommon. And yet when you're in it, it's really tough to know what to do and really tough to like see an end in sight because you're too busy like being weighed down. Um, and it just feels like a weighty fog. Does this, re- does this, do we hear, does this resonate? Or do you, you, you have a time that you're thinking of maybe? Mm. And so a lot of this wrestling was like silence and questioning shaking my fist at the sky, (laughs) Um, and feeling a lot of loneliness, too. Um, But reflecting on this middle and reading about the cross, I'm comforted in knowing that Jesus knows what it is to wrestle. Jesus did that very thing to God. Um, Jesus felt forsaken and abandoned by God, and still, in his final cry, um, he called back to God's very steadfast presence. Um, I do believe what drew me out of this season, um, of course, was God, but God through God's people. It was the staff. It was prayer up there after just, like, weeping a lot (laughs) and (laughs) saying few words, being prayed over. It was wise women who listened and told me what I needed to hear, even if I was prickly to it. It was that coaching group that just sat in it with me. It was a student who wrestled and questioned and cried out alongside me. This cloud of witnesses God used for me to very, very slowly um, start again to see God's mercies, um, God's gifts and grace, and God's presence. And another bit 
of this, too, was um, recognizing the daily graces by practicing gratitude. Um, as Ann Voskamp describes it, God is in the details. God is in the moment. God is in all that blurs by in a life, even the hurts in a life. So there was a period of about 10 weeks. It was 66 days. Hashtag, we made it a hashtag. 66 days of manna where we, as a community, some of us um, reflected each day on the things that God had provided for us that day and wrote it down. So recognizing and naming these things um, transformed my mind and renewed my mind to begin again to more faithfully embody the mercy and compassion that is extended to me and to us in every moment through God's mercy and grace. Um, so in other words, when I'm more attuned to this message of the cross, an example of great love and obedience and surrender, the power does something to me, and it does something to you too. There's a shift that comes in recognizing the reality of not just my belovedness and of your belovedness, but our belovedness and God's presence in that. So with all of this in mind, I've been saying God's presence, God's presence, God's presence. Um, one, one of the things that we do together as a body and communal effort to turn toward God um, is morning prayer, as was announced. This is maybe a plug for morning prayer. Um, a few weeks ago, Reed led us in an ordered prayer. That's a liturgy. We're quite into those now as a community. Um, and this was a liturgy of searching. And it includes a dialogue of seeking and finding between God and us. And so this morning, I want us to pray that together. Reed's going to come up um, and lead that liturgy. And then you all have access to that as well in the lyrics and notes. So as he's coming up, um, he may have a few more words to say, um, and then he'll lead us. Um, he will be the leader, and I with you, so we will pray the all part. Says all, right? We'll pray the all part, me and you slash us together. Does that make sense? Okay. So the the first question in the Hebrew scriptures that God asks is, where are you? And the first question in the New Testament that people ask is, where is he who is born the king of the Jews? And these two questions represent maybe two of the most vital uh, experiences of our human lives. That is God's search for us and our search for God. So that's kind of where this uh, liturgy came from. Um, and it's divided into two halves. Our search for God first, in part, acknowledges that Maybe our search for God is not always as earnest or as honest uh, as we would like to tell ourselves that it is, uh, but then also to remind us that as we persist in seeking, God will be found. Uh, and then the second half is God's search for us, um, which is meant to bring us into contact with this, this truth, this experience that wherever we might try to run God, uh, and this is a paradox for all the times that God sometimes feels hidden. God is also always searching for us. Uh, and so that's what this liturgy is designed to bring us in contact with, is those two experiences. Uh, so I'm gonna invite you to pray. And as I said, um, if you have it, also just practically, there was a weird formatting thing for at least for me when my phone is upright, it looks all wild, but if you just turn it sideways, it looks nice and orderly. So uh, that might 
help with the reading. Okay. Oh, you discovered it. <laughs> right? And then you will pray with Leah as she, as she leads the sections that say all. Uh, and this liturgy, too, is a couple of excerpts um, from, there are a couple of excerpts from different authors, but the rest of it is all just scripture that has been put into this kind of call-response format. Okay, let's take a deep breath. If God, such a God as any adult religion believes in, exists, mere movement in space will never bring you any nearer to him or any farther from him than you are at this very moment. You can neither reach him nor avoid him by traveling to Alpha Centauri or even to other galaxies. A fish is no more and no less in the sea after it has swum a thousand miles than it was when it set out. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east. They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Because I have called and you refused to listen, have stretched out my hand and no one has heeded, when distress, and, when distress and anguish come upon you, they will call upon me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but will not find me. They shall eat the fruit of their way and have the fill of their own devices. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. I will be with you a little longer, and then... I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Sometimes God hides. Sometimes what I might first name God's absence is in fact God's hiding. In a sense, God hides amid all the many divine metaphors and similes that litter the scriptures. This is a God who conceals and reveals, who gives and takes away. For our edification, for our growth, for God's own whimsical pleasure, the self-hiding God is not one whose end is to stay hidden. The self-hiding God is also at the same moment the God who self-discloses so that God might be found by us. God has a habit of hiding in the same places. Thus, we know where to look, and indeed, the Bible spells out where many of these places are. God hides in bread and wine, in silence, in gardens, in cities, in prisons, in hunger and privation and poverty, in song. Says the prophet Jeremiah, when you search for me, you will find me if you seek me with all your heart. O oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you 
my flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Seek my face. Your face, Lord, do I seek. Seek my face. Your face, Lord, do I seek. Seek my face. Your face, Lord, do I seek. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. Another deep breath. And now moving to God's search for us. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But God called to the man and said, Where are you? I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Where are you? O oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. Where are you? You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O oh Lord, you know it altogether. Where are you? You hem me in behind and before and lay out your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where are you? Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed and shield, you are there. Where are you? If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. Where are you? If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. Where are you? For you form my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. Where are you? My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Where are you? Your eyes saw my unformed substance, and your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Where are you? How precious to me are your thoughts, O oh God. How vast is the sum of them. If I could count them, they are more than the sand. I awake, and I am still with you. Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Where shall I go from your spirit? Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Where shall I flee from your presence? 
Let us celebrate, for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. I awake and I am still with you. Where are you? I awake and I am still with you. Amen. I awake and I am still with you. Some of us may have been saying that, just holding on, barely. Um, but maybe in praying that, that is a step toward recognizing um, that God is with us. Very fittingly, I think, after Christ's resurrection, the book of Matthew ends with these last words of Jesus after he's been resurrected to the 11 remaining disciples. And Jesus says, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So after being taken on this journey of Christ's suffering, the betrayal and loneliness he endured, and his steadfast and complete submission to God, I'm comforted by this last charge. I'm comforted in knowing that when I wholly trust God and God's presence, I will not be left alone. So when I'm worried about the future, or it seems life seems very foggy, or when I see tragedy and evil around me, I have to fight sometimes to hold on um, to the truth that no matter what, God is with me and he's with us. He's with me and with you and with us. Um, and even just a little bit um, is enough to transform me in a way that makes me more and more attentive to where and how God is calling me to lean into um, justice and mercy and faithfulness. And this not just for my sake, but for the coming of God's kingdom on this earth, on this campus. <coughs> 